Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning, South Valley. It's great to see you guys today. Uh, Today is a special Sunday for a couple reasons. One is we're continuing our series in the book of Esther. Another reason today's special is uh, today is the beginning of the NFL season. Anybody excited about that? I see some jerseys in here today. All right. And if you're a Chiefs fan, you're not very excited today because, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Thursday was pretty rough. But, hey, you got the whole season ahead of you. You heard about this uh, event coming up for men. If you want to hang out with some guys, get some tri-tip, watch a game. We got an event coming up. There's sign-ups in the lobby. Uh, Our men's ministry is putting it on. Sign up. We'd love to see you there. It'd be a great time to get to know some people in the church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn right now to the book of Esther. And and here's my encouragement to you. Um, I'd encourage you every week to come prepared to open up the text with me. And so whether that's an iPad that you use or a physical Bible that you use or a phone, whatever you use, I just encourage you to actually read along. We're going to read every single word, every verse out of this story. We also, if you need a Bible... I use the ESV uh, Thinline Bible, and we sell these Bibles in the church lobby. We have a couple left. We sell them for 10 bucks. They're $20 online. We sell them 50% off. So if you're looking for a Bible, a, a nice compact Bible, I'd encourage you to check that out. Now, let's go ahead and jump into it. As we learned last week, the book of Esther is the story about the salvation of the Jewish people from genocide in Persia. The story takes place in a Persian court with a group of powerful Persian men who are eventually outwitted by a Jewish woman. The book was written to document the origins of a Jewish festival, a festival called Purim, a festival that's continued to be celebrated today in Israel. It celebrates Israel's survival and exile and God's faithfulness to his promises. And that's really what this book is all about. Esther is the story about how against all odds, the fate of God's people was reversed. God is in control. God is true to his promises. One seemingly insignificant event leads to another. And in this mysterious chain of human actions, the promises of God made with his covenant people in the Old Testament are not only upheld, but they are fulfilled. And the reason why is because when God promises it, you can trust it. Anybody, can I get an amen this morning? When God says something, he is true to his word. When he makes a promise, he fulfills that promise. Even when we are unfaithful, he still remains faithful. He is is unchanging and he is true to his word. And that's one of the things we're going to see over and over again in the book of Esther. So go ahead and turn there. It's after 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And if you get hit Job, you're just a little bit too far. Last week we introduced uh, a king by the name of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is more commonly known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And what we know about Xerxes is he was this powerful man 
most powerful man on the planet in charge of the greatest kingdom in the entire world up to that point. And in the year 483, Ahasuerus was planning his forthcoming invasion of Greece. When I introduced Xerxes last week, I mentioned uh, the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300. And, and, and maybe you've seen that movie. I'm not suggesting you see it, by the way. Um, but because the 300, they, you know, they, for some reason, they had to stand their ground with their shirts off. But it worked for them. It worked for them and inspired a lot of fitness in the, those who watched it. Uh, and, uh, you know, King Leonidas and the 300, they defeat mighty King Xerxes and his millions because they had a better strategic plan. Well, Ahasuerus, he's throwing, Xerxes, he's throwing this lavish party. And he's inviting people from all over the country to come and see his palace and see his lifestyle. He couldn't post it on Instagram, so he wanted them to come and see it for themselves. And he's trying to woo them because he has a special mission for them. He wants them to go invade Greece. And so he has this party. It's a six-month party followed by a seven-day feast with an open bar and all the best wine. Okay, he's, he's feeding everybody's addictions. Okay, he's, he's, he's a pagan guy. He worships pagan gods. And in fact, alcohol was a big part of their religion. The, drunk, the more drunk you were at, uh, at these parties, the, the more intoxicated you were, the more you felt like you, they said that you were closer to the gods. That's literally how these people thought. And so they're feasting sumptuously. He's got all his mighty men around. I don't know if they're wearing their shirts or not, but they're all hanging out. And uh, they have a conversation. And we don't know exactly how this conversation goes. Some have speculated, but some started, some have speculated that maybe they were talking about, you know, all of Persia. Where do the most beautiful women in Persia come from? And so they're debating, no, they come from my area or they come from this area or they come from, from that area. This is just the guys and they're all drinking. Okay. This is not a good scene. This is not a holy scene. This is not a righteous scene. And then we hear from Xerxes, the king, he's a pagan king and he has this terrible idea at the beginning of our section, we were, we're going to read that his wife was throwing her own little party with the gals. And everything seemed to be going okay until Xerxes decided to do something very foolish. He sent seven of his eunuchs to fetch his wife and parade her in front of the boys like a trophy. You can imagine how that would go over. We aren't sure if this parade was rated PG or if this was for mature audiences. Historians debate, commentators debate, but we do know that he was drunk, the guys were drunk, and he genuinely believed this was a good idea at the time. And that's just a, you know, just a side note. Uh, if it, getting drunk makes you think that bad ideas are good ideas. <laughs> and that's what's happening here. He has a bad idea, that he thinks is a good idea. And so he sends for his wife. And as you could imagine, he says, hey, I want you to put on what I want you to put on and I want you to get on this thing that we're gonna carry you on and I want you to show you off to the guys. And as you would imagine, the plan backfired, which set into motion the amazing events of this book. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump into it. Father God, we know that we live in a broken world. We know that we live in a world where people are mistreated, 
where people are treated like objects instead of human beings. And we know, Lord, that your ways are righteous and good. I pray, God, that we would be about the things that you are about. I pray, Lord, that when we misuse your name or when we abuse or hurt or mistreat others, that we would have humility within ourselves to recognize that we've missed the mark. We've fallen short. We've broken your heart. We've sinned. And I pray that you would meet us in that low spot because you offer grace to sinners. You offer grace to repentant sinners, to those who actually open their mouths and say, I did it wrong. Give us the courage to acknowledge our wrongs and give us the strength to overcome our weaknesses by the power of your spirit and through your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people send. Amen. Esther 1, starting in verse 9, this is what it says. Now, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused. She refused to come to the king's, at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshna, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, and Marsana, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the kings and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out, to, out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Esther chapter 1 presents a number of serious dilemmas. The first serious dilemma is the dilemma of absolute power. Let me ask you this question. If you had absolute power, would the world we are living in today, would it be better or would it be worse? If you could do whatever you wanted with whoever you wanted and you were at the top of the org chart and you had the power and authority, what would change in the world? Would things get better? Would things get worse? I asked my son this question this week, John. Uh, I asked him, hey buddy, if you were in charge, if you had the power and the authority, what would you do with it? My son said, well, you know, the first thing I do, dad, is I would do jujitsu on all the bad guys. I'm like... (laughs) It's a good idea. And then once they're all, you know, done with, then I'd give everybody else armor and a sword. I'm like, oh, that sounds like an interesting plan. And after that, uh, I would tell everyone to be nice to each other. I'm like, good idea, John. I'd go to your, I'd go to your kingdom. Historically speaking, though, absolute power held by flawed human beings is a terrifying scenario. One only has to mention names from recent world history like Stalin Kim Jong-un, Hitler, to bring to mind the, the terrors that have been wrought by unchecked worldly power. So Xerxes. Xerxes had absolute power over the entire known world, but he couldn't control his wife, which for him was the most embarrassing thing that could happen to a king. Just a side note, I remember uh, one time as a teenager, I was dealing with a girl problem and, uh, and I didn't know what to do. And so I pulled my dad aside and I asked my dad for advice. Like maybe my dad you know, would have some good advice for this. So I sat down with him. I remember being in his office and, and my dad's all, you know what, son? Um, I recommend you read this book. Uh, this book has helped me and I hope that it'll help you. Uh, maybe it'll be a resource for you. He pulled the book off of the shelf. It was titled, Everything Men Know About Women. I'm, I'm like, yes, I'm gonna be a pro after I read this book. And so I took the book home and I was really excited to dig into it. And, and I still own the book today. But when I got home and I opened it up, I went to read the first page and noticed all the pages were blank. <laughs> <laughs> Xerxes didn't have the answers either. <laughs> Xerxes was trying to figure out what to do. His wife had misbehaved. He's the king. And not only did she do that, but to to him, it wasn't something behind closed doors. It was in front of the whole kingdom. Now, feminist theologians, uh, they use this squabble between Vashti and Xerxes to build a theology around sexism. And although there are valuable lessons to be learned about sexism, that's a real reality in this passage. I do also want us to be careful not to read the book of Esther through that lens because the book of Esther, it's not about sexism, it's about genocide. Jewish interpreters though, have a long history of arguing whether Queen Vashti was right or wrong in refusing her husband, the king. 
Okay, some would say that she was right because her husband was treating her like a sex symbol. And so they believe that her refusal to participate in this parade, this act in front of the boys was an act of of strength on her part in a standing up for women everywhere. Others though have debated saying that she was wrong. She was wrong because she didn't submit to the leadership of her husband. That she was wrong because she didn't submit to the authority of the king. And she made him look like a fool in front of the entire kingdom. And I'm pointing this out because this passage is the first of many passages in Esther where the author refrains from making any moral or ethical evaluation. That's gonna be common in the book of Esther. Esther presents this tension where it gives us the ability to think about what we would do in that situation. And what is the right response? What is the wrong response? So let me ask you, was Vashti right for refusing the king or was she wrong? Who would say she was right for refusing the king? Hand up nice and high. All right. Who would say that she was wrong for refusing the king? Hand up nice and high. Okay, I see about 50-50 in here today. Now, I have an opinion on whether she was right or wrong, and I'm not going to tell you what my opinion is, because that's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to put you in these challenging scenarios. What would you do? It's, it doesn't, it it gives us uh, a chance to to imagine ourselves in this situation. It's left up to us to decide. uh, And and, uh, not, and that's something that you can hash out in your small groups this week as you study Esther. Whether she was right or wrong, I'm not gonna say, but I do know that it leads to dilemma number two. And this is a dilemma that's gonna be hard to get over at times. And it's the dilemma of moral ambiguity. Did you know that some Christians like Martin Luther wanted Esther removed from the Bible? He petitioned to get Esther out of the Bible because all of the characters in the book of Esther are questionable. Esther makes questionable decisions. Vashti just made a questionable decision. Mordecai makes questionable decisions. Xerxes makes questionable decisions. Every character is questionable. And, and, and this is important. We're gonna talk more about it next week. But what I want you to know when you read the Bible... The Bible is not a book about the good guys and the bad guys, the people who do the right things and the people who do the wrong things. The Bible is a book about the fact that everybody does the wrong thing except for one person. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book written to flawed people. Isn't that encouraging? Because I know when I read the Bible, if you're just gonna tell me be a good person, I'm gonna walk away with my head down because by my own strength and by my own power, I cannot just be a good person. We are broken human beings, marred by sin. If you've ever tried to just be a good person, then you know it doesn't last very long. Or you have a version of good that you think is good and God sees it and you're like, man, you're not even close. Because Jesus is the standard, not your neighbor. Jesus is the standard, not the person that you see, you know, out at your workplace. Jesus Christ is the standard. And if Jesus is the standard, it doesn't matter how good you are, you always come far short of being like Jesus. The Bible is not a book about the good people and the bad people. The Bible is a book about flawed people in need of a savior, the only good person, Jesus Christ, the son of God. That said, what I want you to hear today 
Not only are we flawed, okay, that's, you know, some of us, we have a hard time accepting that, but it's the, it's the truth. But there's an, uh, something encouraging that we're going to see through this story, and it's that, that God uses flawed people. He uses flawed people. Although there's only about 50 years separating these two major figures in the Old Testament, what I need you to see today and throughout this story is Ezra or Esther is no Daniel. If you were with us last, time, last year around this time, we studied the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we learned about these characters that, that they were very hard to attain what they were doing. They stood on their convictions. They were firm in their beliefs. They, they, they always did what was right. And they did it all the time. The rest of the Bible, though, is not like that. Okay, there are a few people in Scripture that I personally find it hard to relate to. Okay, one person is obviously Jesus Christ. He's the perfect spotless lamb of God. Even though Jesus suffered like we suffer, even though he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, none of us know what it's like to be God. So that's hard to relate to that. The other character is Joseph. You might remember him. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. He's left for dead. But he's this prime example of, of a life lived for the glory of God. And at the end of his life, he offers forgiveness to family members that tried to kill him. I don't know if I could do that. And then you have Daniel, the man of perfect piety, stood on his convictions. Even in his old age, he'd say, he's like, I would rather you throw me in a den of lions than fail to stand on my convictions. And you hear these stories, and these are all people to aspire to, to be like, but the reality is we all fall short. The rest of the Bible, every character in, that bo in this book is a hot mess. Okay? You're like, oh my gosh, I relate to that. <laughs> I've been on Hot Mess Express for a while now. <laughs> okay. Abraham pretended that his wife was his sister. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. He did it twice. Jacob lied. Moses killed an Egyptian. David slept with a woman and then tried to get rid of his, her husband in battle. Solomon had many wives. Paul killed Christians. Peter denied Jesus three times. The list goes on and on and on. And, and, and you might hear that and think like, oh my gosh, that, doesn't that mean that like maybe the Bible, I, should I be worried about the Bible? No, that shows that the Bible is actually true because it's not trying to make a hero of all these great men and women of the faith. They're, they are not heroes. There is one capital H hero. His name is Jesus Christ. We are all like the other people in the story. We come up short, we mess up, we do things we wish we hadn't, we find ourselves in moments of weakness and we respond in ways that we know we shouldn't and then we're left to pick up the pieces. And so when you read this book, don't read it, read it as if there are good guys and bad guys. There are flawed people and Jesus is powerful and mighty and he works past our flaws and through our flaws and he makes us new in his name. Our story, though, begins with a battle of the sexes, which is the title of my sermon. And the reason it begins with a battle of the sexes is because the book is about how a group of powerful Persian men are miraculously outwitted by a beautiful Jewish woman. One commentator writes this. 
She has one of my favorite commentaries on this book, by the way. Although Esther, the woman, may start out as a sexual stereotype, she develops into a leader within her religious community upon whose authority Purim still stands. So how did Xerxes respond to Vashti's refusal to be paraded as a trophy in front of the boys? How did she respond? Or how did he respond? Well, instead of discussing the issue with his wife, he decided to handle it with his advisors. He got drunk and he deliberated with his counsel. And as they were drunk together and making a plan, the plan was to get rid of his wife. And I just wanna point this out because this was a common way of making decisions in Persia. Ancient historians like Josephus said that Persians often made decisions while they were intoxicated. They thought they were closer to the gods. He says, it was Persian custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. And what they approve in their councils is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house where they deliberate. When they are now sober, and if being sober, they still approve of it, they act thereon. But if not, they cast it aside. So they believe they make the best decisions while they're drunk. And so that's sometimes how they put their things into law. And, you know, there's sometimes I wonder if that's how laws are passed in our country. <laughs> We make bad decisions when we're drunk. And this was one of those decisions. And you're gonna see in chapter two that he actually kind of sense that he regrets it, but he makes the decision, he gets rid of his wife. And there's no getting, there's no stopping it. Once you put it into law with the Persians and the Medes, that law is a law. And so the conclusion was to enforce a new law. And here it is. All women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. That was the law. The law was written in every language in the kingdom and sent out to all the provinces. Well, Xerxes' law, when I read it, made me think of a quote I came across from an old uh, mentor of mine. He trained me a little bit in ministry. His name's Dave Kraft. He has a book titled Leaders That Last. And, and he put this up on his Facebook just a couple weeks ago. He said, your position may give you authority, but your behavior gives you respect. Anyone resonate with that this morning? Your position may give you authority, but your behavior gives you respect. Here is a reminder to those in authority. If you have a position of authority, you, are a, you, you lead, you, you're a, maybe a business owner, you're a manager, you're a teacher, you're, I don't know, you have some kind of position of authority. Remember that you cannot legislate loyalty. If we must command respect, then it's likely because we are not respectable. And we know this. Some employees struggle to follow their bosses because their bosses are poor, moral, ethical, and relational examples. They're selfish. They're self-centered. So even though as employees, we're meant to be faithful to our bosses and work hard and do all of those things, sometimes it's hard when we know we are following somebody that doesn't, the, the, ethically, they're, they're in a really bad spot. Similarly, some citizens, and I'm not, tell, I'm not talking about civil disobedience right now, I'm not encouraging that, but some citizens struggle to fall in line with their leaders of their government because their leaders are often corrupt and they don't practice what they preach. Any of you ever struggle with that? 
you're asking me to do this, but none of you are doing it. You expect this from the citizens, but none of you are prepared to live that way. And so that gets hard. Some wives similarly struggle to follow the leadership of their husbands because their husbands are like Xerxes, partying with the boys, treating women like dirt. Chapter one is about terrible leadership in the home and terrible leadership in government. It forces us to face the fact that there is only one person who rightly wields absolute power in his name is Jesus Christ. Only a king with perfect character is worthy of absolute power. Only a perfect king can wield power with true law and justice. And Jesus is the eternal king, both omnipotent and holy. He's the only one who can justly expose the fatal flaws of the world's greatest leaders because he alone wields absolute power power with moral perfection. Jesus has been crowned the king of all kings. He's been given dominion over all the world. And at times we see the, the people over us and the people above us. And it feels like they're, they're doing things that are wrong. And, and it feels like it's over our head and that we cannot change things. But when we are in that spot, we need to remember that although things at time may feel over our head, all things are under Jesus's feet. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. He's perfect and righteous in all his ways. And as leaders, we strive to be like Jesus. But when we fall short, we repent and we ask him to make us more like him. Well, the moral ambiguity of Esther is not a problem for us to overcome in order to interpret the text. It's there for a reason. But it's a, it's a part of the literary fabric of the story. It's a reminder that divine providence works through human behavior that flows from even the most ambiguous and confused of motives. God uses broken people. And he is powerful and he sees people even when they're not ready, even when they don't feel ready, even when, they, when, they, when they're in a bad place and, and they're not in a healthy place, God can still use them and still often does use them. God often moves through flawed people because he is righteous and good and just. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which leads to our final dilemma, dilemma number three, and that is the dilemma of toxic relationships. Queen Vashti is setting us up for the story of another queen, Queen Esther. And what we know about both of these queens is that both women are locked in a toxic relationship. It's a relationship that is sexually and politically charged. And by introducing uh, Vashti in chapter one, we're, we're supposed to also begin to think about Esther. We're invited to make a comparison between the two women and how they handle the situation that they're living in. These two beautiful women were living in a time in history under Persian rule where it was a male-dominated world and it was truly chauvinistic and in a Persian society where uh, you, if you were a wife, you were one of many wives. And historians from that time say that each notable Persian uh, he, man, if he, was, if he was a noble man, he had many wives and even more concubines. That's the world they were living in. A pagan world, a broken world, a dark world world. And so here's the question. 
if things didn't work out for Vashti when she stood up against the system, then what makes us think that things are gonna get any better for Esther if she decides to stand up against the system? In fact, how is Esther going to handle this toxic relationship? How is she gonna deal with this relationship with the king and how women are treated in the king's court? And what about the king's harem and all the thousands of women that he sleeps with and his many wives? What should she do? Should she submit? Should she fight back? Those are the questions that we're presented with in chapter one. What would you do in a world like that where you have no voice and you seem to have no power and it just seems like you just have to go with the flow? Can you really fight back against the system? What we're gonna see here is that God is working in the shadows. Things that feel too big for us are tiny for him. When it seems like the world's going sideways, God is still weaving together a beautiful and perfect plan. The question is, do you trust him? The question is, will you stand for him? The question is, will you believe him even when it's hard? The question is, even if it costs you your reputation, will you stand on what you believe, your convictions, what is right and true and just? Now, I don't think Esther was prepared for this early on. I think Esther starts off, we're gonna talk about it next week, as a very lukewarm believer. She believes in God, but she's not following God. She's going by her pagan name. She's living in a pagan world. She's eating a pagan diet. She's not like Daniel. She's probably in the same pagan worship environments. No one even knows she's a Jew. No one even knows. But I believe that she begins to discover her faith in a new way when God is working in the shadows and she gets a sense that something needs to change. Something in my life needs to be different. And it's not just for me, it's also for everybody around me. Others need me to be different because I could change the world. The same is true for you. You could change the world, but sometimes to change the world, something in you needs to change first. We are a lot like Esther. Many of us, we are half in, half out when it comes to our walk with God. We believe one day, we don't believe the next day. We worship on Sundays. We, you know, we yell at our, our coworkers on Mondays. And we're half in, we're half out and, and, and God wants to use us and, and God's calling us. And sometimes something needs to change in us before we step into our destiny. And that's what's gonna happen with Esther. She's, the, the, looks like the world is falling apart and it looks like God is silent, but God was preparing her for such a time as this. The same can be true with you. Even if you're flawed, even if you're broken, God is not done with you yet. Are you ready to step into whatever your destiny is? How will you respond to the challenges and trials in your life? I wanna close with three takeaways. Number one, takeaway number one, power does not equal respect. So we think about our lives, and especially for those in this room who have authority, we all do at some level. Every one of us knows what it's like to have authority and submission relationships, okay? We, there are some of us, we have authority over certain things, but we are all called to submit in other areas. Everybody knows about authority and submission, okay? I have a bit of authority around here, but if I get pulled over by a cop one day and he asks for my license, I can't say, no, I'm not gonna give it to you. I'm a pastor, okay? It won't work. But power doesn't equal respect. Respect is earned, it's not given. And so my encouragement to you, if you are in a position of power, be a person of character, 
Husbands, what kind of character do your kids see? What kind of character do, does your wife see? Do they see a man who is about the things that God is about? Or do they see a man who is just like all the other dudes on the earth, drinking, smoking, partying, morally corrupt, bouncing around, objectifying women? What kind of man are you? What kind of man will your son become? Men, power, just because we are called, we, so I believe, just so you know, in scripture, in biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, I believe in, in biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is one man, one woman together, one flesh forever. Okay, I believe in that. And I believe that men and women have roles in the relationship. We read in Ephesians 5 that, that husbands are to, to lead, but they lead as a servant leader that lays down his life for the good of his wife. I also believe that women, according to scripture, wives, not just women, but, but wives within that special relationship, the marriage relationship, are called to trust the loving leadership of their husbands. But I also know that some husbands out there are unworthy of respect. And I'm not saying that that gives license for people to disrespect you but I wanna encourage you to remember the fact that power does not equal respect. Respect is earned, it's not given. Be a person of character, be known for your compassion, be known for your love. If you're a boss, if you're a teacher, if you're a leader, if you're somebody in authority, if you're a cop, if you're a firefighter, if you do something that you oversee others and care for others, don't legislate loyalty, earn it by your actions. Number two, lead like Jesus. Jesus says this about leadership. You know that the rulers of the world, the Gentiles, when they're leaders, they lord it over the people that they lead. I'm the boss, I'm the man, I'm the woman, I am your Lord, you gotta do everything I say. They lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says leadership in my kingdom is different than leadership in the world. Because leadership in the world is there's somebody on a platform and there's all of this person's servants. And the person on the platform is, pulls out a whip and he's whipping the servants in order for the servants to drag him in the direction he needs to go. But I don't lead like that. I get off the platform and I step in the very front of the line and I pave the road and I help lead the way for others to follow. <laughs> Servant leadership putting others first. Not, I'm in charge, you do as I say, but I'm gonna show you the way. Follow me as I follow Christ. And finally, number three, don't settle for toxic. How relevant is this today, right? When you hear about a hazardous and Vashti, like, oh my gosh, that's, that's behind the door of a lot of American homes. A marriage that's on fire, a infidelity, um, absent uh, husband. Like there's, we, we've heard this story over and over again. And some of us in this room today, we're stuck in toxic relationships. And so I wanna encourage you, if you find yourself in one of those things, don't, don't settle for toxic. 
In my research this week, I learned that one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence from an intimate partner. Don't normalize that. Don't normalize abuse in your life. Don't normalize gaslighting or other mind games in your life. If you are stuck in something toxic, either get help to turn that relationship around or get out and ask for wisdom for what to do. Now, we, we wanna save marriages around here at South Valley. We, we wanna save people from having to pick up the, the pieces of a, a broken marriage. But we, we also wanna come alongside you at times and just let you know not to deal with living every day in the games and gaslighting of a toxic relationship. Now, I know that this topic today is a challenge because some of us have been toxic to others. Some of us have failed to lead like Jesus. Some of us have abused our power. What do we do now? Are we just done with? Does God not care about us? Should I never come back to this church again because I messed up in these areas? Absolutely not. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for the toxic person. Jesus died for the morally corrupt person. Jesus died for those who abused their power. Jesus died for those who failed to lead correctly. Jesus died for failures like you and me, for flawed people. He went to the cross and he took on our sin and our shame and our regrets, things that, that we are ashamed, wish we never did, things that we wish we could change. And he, he, he died for our sins and he rose from the grave for our salvation so that when we believe in him, you come to Jesus with all your junk and you carry it like, like clothing on your back is with you everywhere you go. It mars you, it, it defines you. This is who you are. And what Jesus does is he takes that robe off of your shoulders. And in the place of that robe, he gives you the robe of righteousness and purity that are resting on his shoulders. And he takes your sin and your shame and he takes it off and he gives you a hug and he wraps you up and he reminds you, I died for that. And he puts his righteousness and his love and his justice so that in God's sight, you are declared holy and righteous and good and just. And now you have access to the God of lights. And guess what happens? Now you can change. It's the gospel that changes us. Messages that say, be a better person, doesn't change us. Messages that say, you blew it, turn to Jesus, he'll change you. That's the gospel. Give you the Holy Spirit who wipe away your sins. As far as the East is from the West, he will, he will separate your sins and remember them no more. If you're carrying something today, you hurt someone in a relationship, you hurt someone with abusive power, you hurt somebody in some way or some shape or some form, my encouragement to you today, first step, bring it to Jesus and let him begin to redeem what is broken in your life and watch as he uses flawed people to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for an amazing study. And it's more than just a study. Your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's breathed out by you. 
We preach your word around here because that's the beginning of change. Your word convicts us. Your word strengthens us. Your word grows us. I pray, Lord, that we would not ignore your word. I pray, Lord, that we would not ignore the things in our lives that need to change. I pray, Lord, that this would be a church that is safe for people who need to change, that this would be a church where it's safe to, to come as you are, You have where people have the space to grow. We are not expecting perfection out of everybody in here. We know that we are a, a hospital for sinners. We are a group of flawed people, but by your grace and by your power, we will change into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we fall short, pick us back up and help us walk your path, your straight and narrow we thank you for making a way into your kingdom. Bless this congregation, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.